What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Over the weekend, Israel continued its bombardments on Gaza, where more than 8,000 Palestinians have been killed, including a reported 825 entire family lines wiped from the civil registry. The number of children reported killed has surpassed the annual number of children killed across the entire world's conflict zone since 2019, according to the Adullah Justice Project. In addition to the dead, of course, there are many more wounded. While Israel maintains a siege and people in Gaza have little access to water, food, or electricity, meanwhile, since October 7th, Israel has taken more than 5,000 Palestinians hostage as prisoners, doubling the number held in Israeli detention facilities prior. I'm joined today by two guests. Zena Tahan is an Al Jazeera digital correspondent in Jerusalem. Zena, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's good to be on. Happy to have you here. We're also joined by Muhammad Ayash, policy analyst for Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, and professor of sociology at Mount Royal University in Calgary. He was born and raised until age 14 in Palestine under Israeli occupation. Muhammad, thank you for being here. Let's start with some of the details of what's happened over the weekend in Gaza. Zaina, I'm wondering if you could start by sharing the story of your Al Jazeera colleague who's in Gaza that you posted on your social media after the area went through essentially a full, complete communication blackout for part of the weekend. Can you briefly describe the communication blackout and and share Madam's story? Yes, sure. Uh, So Madam is also, she's my colleague at Al Jazeera English. She's the digital correspondent there. Um, She's a mother of two. Um, I only met her, I was only ever able to meet her in Qatar uh, during visits and then she returned a few years ago back to Gaza Um, and uh, she moved with her family like many other people uh, to the south Um, and the night on Friday night uh, when all communication was cut with Gaza, um, obviously we were all freaking out. no one could contact their family. People in their homes didn't have any contact with anyone else. So I'm just gonna uh, read what Maram told me the morning after. Uh, sorry, on Sunday morning, um, when the communication came back on. She told me yesterday was the scariest night of my life. We all thought we were going to die. We all read Quran and prepared ourselves for death and martyrdom. There was no light, just the red and yellow light from the explosions. No electricity, just the constant explosions and shelling all around you. We couldn't reach anyone. We had no idea what was going on. It was horrific. If anything were to have happened to any one of us, we wouldn't have been able to call an ambulance. None of us could speak anymore. Our nerves were worn out. Each of us was sitting in a corner in silence. All of this while there were explosions and shelling all around us. You feel the hits as though they're on top of your head, that they are so close. And then she later told me that the water they're drinking is not uh, fit for drinking. It's uh, contaminated, but that they have nothing else to drink and that they searched for water everywhere. Um, Her friend's son kept throwing up from the water and she was also very worried about her two-month-old baby, Maram. Her mother also woke up with with a lot of pain from renal colic and uh, she needed an injection and they weren't able to call anyone for hours during the blackout. 
And the last thing I'll share from Maram, uh, while she was reporting um, for Al Jazeera, she went, she visited uh, hospitals. She told me that um, there were worms coming out of people's wounds um, and that there were bodies pulled out, uh, people pulled out from under the rubble after four days. Um, and the smell inside the hospital of rotting bodies was, was something that she, she couldn't describe. I need to take a breath after hearing all that. Um, um, we know also in terms of hospitals and healthcare that there have been times that Israel has targeted uh, those types of facilities. We learned yesterday that Israel was bombing an area near a hospital called Al-Quds in Gaza, which is certainly my understanding is being used to treat people, but also being used kind of as a shelter for people who've been displaced from their homes. Y you talked a little bit about what your colleague is seeing in healthcare settings. We've heard about the 8,000 uh, people tragically killed in the situation. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, at least as far as you're aware, how people um, are able to find or seek medical treatment in this uh, very difficult time. You know, there are people dying because of their yeah, doctor's inability to treat them. Um, there are people dying from, uh, from, from getting sick. Basically, there are diseases spreading. Um, I think the situation is very, very, very dire. I, I think they're doing what they're able to, but, um, you know, as I said, they're pulling bodies out way later and people are still under the rubble. So. The situation is very difficult. There are tens of thousands of people seeking shelter in hospitals, um, and these people left from the areas in the, in the north and went to more center and south. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very scary. Thank you, Zaina. Um, Mohanad, I want to bring you into the conversation. You've been closely monitoring. Um, we learned, like I mentioned, that Israel was bombing an area nearby a hospital called Al-Quds, in Gaza, I'm wondering, um, what do we know about the outcome of this particular bombing campaign and the impact on Al-Quds or other hospitals in the area? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you can you can follow the reporting of, of Palestinians sending you tweets from within these hospitals, um, uh, sending out, uh, uh, you know, sharing their stories with whoever will listen about what is happening. Um, uh, you just have to go and seek it out because the mainstream media won't talk about it uh, in, in places like Canada and the US and the UK. Um, it's just a, painted as a tragic story that, that is akin to a, a natural disaster, as if there's nothing anyone can do about it. But, but the truth of the matter is, is that the United States, Canada, the UK and others in Western Europe are fully aware of everything that is happening and they are actively participating in it. Uh, we have uh, hospitals have been saying this for the three weeks now that that they are not able to take care of people's medical needs uh, that they have become basically shelters for for uh, the displaced Palestinians um, that they are that they are forced to make decisions about life and death based on their limited resources where they're directing their limited resources to people who they think they have a chance at saving and where other people that otherwise would have been, they would have been able to save, 
they're unfortunately having to, they're being forced to make the decision that they cannot give those people medical treatment. Uh, this is deliberate. Nobody is, is unaware of this in, in policy-making circles. Uh, the Israeli state knows exactly what it's doing. The United States knows exactly what the Israeli state is doing. And they are participating in this genocide. This is a clear, deliberate killing of as many Palestinians as possible, trying to expel them from the northern parts of the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, and, and, call, and, and, and so that Israel can colonize that land. This is the situation. That is the, exactly what is happening. This is the most accurate description of what is going on right now. So in terms of what's going on over the weekend in the northern portion of the Gaza Strip, uh, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced a second stage in the attacks I've understood this to mean the beginnings of an actual ground invasion of Gaza by Israeli forces, but also from reports I've seen, they have been fairly unsuccessful at this point. Mohanad, where are we at in this supposed second stage? And as bombings continue, what's the difference between the first and the second stage for people actually living in Gaza? Yes, and and look, there, there, it is difficult right now to, ju to 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 claim that something is successful or unsuccessful. Obviously, the resistance is going to say that they are repelling the attack. Um, uh, they 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 usually do that to keep up morale. I don't I don't know. I'm not on the ground. There's there are no neutral observers to give you a. A, a, a definitive account of how much they're advancing, how successful they are in their mission. Of course, Israelis are going to say that they are being successful. Uh, but, but the bottom line is, is that we are seeing Israeli tanks uh, on the outskirts of Gaza City, as, as, I, as, as I saw this morning reported in Al Jazeera. Um, uh, so, so um, you know, it, but, but let, me, let me just emphasize this. Even though it is difficult for us to know, you know, minute by minute what is happening on the ground, um, the, the, the overall goals of the Israeli mission, uh, regardless of where they're at in their phases, one, two, three, or four, um, uh, uh, the goal is to expel Palestinians from those lands. Um, and, and this is not new. I'm not saying this for the first time. In 2021, I wrote a piece in Al Jazeera where I argued that there is clear uh, uh, indications, all the signs indicate that the Israeli intensification of its uh, dehumanization of Palestinians, the intensification of settlement activity, the, uh, the language that is being used by the Israeli government, that this is going to be um, one territory called Israel, where the population is majority Jewish, and they are using maps that cover everything, including the Gaza Strip, calling it Israel. Netanyahu just pulled up that map again in front of the whole world at the United Nations, just a, a little... A little um, under a month ago or, or just yeah sometime in September but he's been using that map in his election in his election campaigns for a very long time now so so their goal is the expulsion of Palestinians from their lands and the uh, um, extension of Israeli uh, Jewish sovereignty over the entire land from the river to the sea where it would be approximately 80% majority Jewish population which means the expulsion of Palestinians and the Israeli state sees this as an opportunity to advance that plan. The Israeli state has always, and the Zionist movement in general, prior to the establishment of the Israeli state, the viewers really need to understand this. They always saw the project of establishing Israeli state over the entire land as a stage-by-stage -stage process. Ben-Gurion himself used the language. David Ben-Gurion, you know, the, the uh, 
uh, uh, most influential leader in the Zionist movement and the first prime minister of, uh, of Israel after it was created in 1948 used that language of let's do it stage by stage. The Israeli state never let go of that. Uh, vision of, of creating exclusive Israeli Jewish sovereignty over the entire land. And, and so um, uh, I don't know, I don't have the answers in terms of will this specific operation work in all of its objectives? Will they be able to, to colonize the northern half of Gaza Strip and expel Palestinians from it? We will find out very shortly, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, but that is their goal. That is what they want to do. Make no mistake about that. Zena, I heard you in agreement with what Muhammad was saying a few minutes ago. I'm wondering if you have anything to add there. Uh, I think Muhammad summed it up well. Um, I think it's difficult to tell uh, what's going to happen now. Uh, I think there are a lot of um, options on the table, but um, but uh, yes, from the river to the sea, uh, this is its maximum land, as minimum Palestinians as possible. Mm -hmm. And Zena, you're in Jerusalem, which, you know, geographically is not so far from the Gaza Strip. As, as bombings continue in Gaza, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what it is like where you are and how interrupted and impacted daily life is in Jerusalem. Let's, of course, be in comparison to what's what we just heard about what's happening in Gaza. Yeah, in Jerusalem and in the West Bank, um I think uh, daily life uh, uh, has been disrupted quite a bit. Um, I think that even before, I just want to say even before uh, October 7, for decades, since 1967, uh, Israel has been disrupting daily life for millions of Palestinians um, in the territories of Gaza, the eastern side of Jerusalem and the West Bank. Whether that's through land theft, building of illegal settlements or colonies, uh, checkpoints, home demolitions, daily killings and arrests. For the past two years, we've had a, an average of a one Palestinian being killed every day. Um, but now uh, there have been general strikes. Um, schools are continuing, but universities are out. Uh, produce and supermarkets uh, sales are, are really low. Um, they've dropped by half. Um, there's no... Uh, a movement between Jerusalem and the West Bank or between cities in the West Bank themselves or between cities and villages. Movement is very, very restricted. Um, obviously, that has an effect on everything. Um, and there's a heavy militarization uh, inside Jerusalem, inside our neighborhoods, um, and the closure of major checkpoints. So, so yeah. You are describing how movement has been restricted and that has lots of implications. Can you talk about a, a little bit more of those implications? I know you just published a piece on Al Jazeera that described at least what some uh, drivers are dealing with at this moment. Yeah, so um, the drivers, so basically our main roads connecting Palestinian cities are shared with settlers. So as soon as you're outside of the uh, borders of a Palestinian city, let's say uh, there are settlers or there's army or checkpoints, etc. So the roads have become very um, dangerous, uh, including because of settler attacks and also assaults by the Israeli army on people. Um, Drivers specifically are afraid to leave the cities. Um, they've been instructed not to leave the cities because they can't um, take responsibility for anyone's life. Uh, so that's also had an effect on um, um, 
production companies, uh, movement of food, everything uh, across the West Bank. Um, and you're listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. I'm Jesse Strauss in conversation with Al Jazeera digital correspondent Zaina Tahan, as well as Muhammad Ayash, policy analyst for Al Shabaka. Zaina and Muhammad, you've both been paying close attention to reports of attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank by Israeli settlers in what appear to be settler colonial opportunist attacks to take over more land, as you were just describing, Muhammad. Um, Mohanad, what do we know about these apparent land grabs and, and what are you seeing in specific on the West Bank side? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just to, you know, first to just, uh, you know, my thoughts are, are with Zena and everything that she's going through. I, you know, I spoke with some friends in, in Jerusalem uh, over the weekend and, and they, they're saying the exact same things that she's saying. And life has basically stopped for them. You know, I grew up in 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 in, in Jerusalem as uh, uh, as a child of, of the first Intifada. I was eight years old when the Intifada broke out, mm-hmm. um, uh, and you know, so my consciousness of, of politics and the world uh, came at a very early age, um, um, and 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 from eight years old onwards, <laughs> it was not hard for me to understand. You know, Palestinian children today understand what Israel is, what Zionism is better than uh, uh, most of the so-called experts that appear on mainstream media in these, in, in, in these parts of the world. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, when they were sharing some of their stories of what they're experiencing now, and, I, and, and of course I, I said, oh, well, this re- reminds me of the Intifada, and, and they kind of did a nice smile for me to just tell me, no, no, it's much, much, much worse. Um, mm. uh, as bad as the Intifada, um, the time of the occupation, Intifada itself was our was our uprising. So it was it was a it was a moment of hope for us too. Um, and there were some amazing things that the Palestinian people did during the first Intifada. But the pressure that we experienced from Israeli settler colonial occupation was was immense. Um, and and these are people who have you know they were there with me when when we experienced the first Intifada, and they're saying things have gotten worse. Uh, so, so, you know, people need to understand uh, that the, the pressure that Palestinians have been living under for decades, decades in Jerusalem and, and the West Bank since 67, in other parts of Palestine for over 100 years, um, um, it, it's, it has not only been released, it's continuously getting worse. So when we see all of these other news now of, of settlers running rampant in the, in the West Bank, taking land as they please, killing Palestinians, injuring Palestinians, stealing uh, cars and, uh, 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 from Palestinians and, and other uh, property from Palestinians, burning their trees, um, uh, um, and, and there's even more impunity than they already enjoyed. Uh, you know, your listeners have to appreciate the depth of, of this pressure. Like it's it's not I can't even put it into words. I don't know how to put that into words. Um, so, so what we're seeing right now in the West Bank is an intensification of what was already an intense set of violations and violences that Palestinians have been enduring for decades. Um, to, to just, you know, B'it Salem, the, the Israeli human, organiza- human rights organization, uh, I'll just read the quote to kind of just explain to people what, these, uh, what happened over the last three weeks in, in, in mm-hmm. eight, at least eight communities. Um, these eight communities have now been uh, uh, destroyed. Uh, the people, uh, like they, they, they've been expelled from their lands. 
these were home to 87 families, and I quote now from the report, home to 87 families numbering 472 people, of them 136 minors. Uh, they've all left their homes, and they and, and, and I've seen their interviews in Al Jazeera saying, that's it, we don't think we will ever be able to return to those. Um, and then there's six additional communities where there's been a, a, a uh, you know, a partial evacuation, a partial expulsion um, from those 11 families left their homes numbering 80 people, 37 of them minors. So in all, 98 families numbering 552 people, including 173 minors, left their homes since October 7th and more is happening as we speak. I mean, just I would like to ask your listeners to think about that in their own neighborhoods. Imagine 552 people mm. in your own neighborhoods. Um, it, the West Bank is not very large. Um, uh, we're talking about probably like a, a fraction of, of this. I don't know my geography in terms of San Francisco, but we're, it's not it's not a large area. Imagine 552 people in that you are not that far away from all of a sudden being homeless now and saying, I won't be able to return to my home. I mean, uh, um, what would you what would you think of that? What would you do? Um, uh, so so this is the intensification of the settler colonial project. Like I said, this is Israel's goal is to take over the entire territory. What is happening in the Gaza Strip will not stop there. It, they, they, they have the same plans for the West Bank and Jerusalem. Um, uh, unless there is actual serious pressure placed on the Israeli state, this will never stop. Um, and, and, and the United States is as guilty as Israel is of all of these crimes. I want to repeat that. The United States is as guilty as Israel in all of these crimes. And people in the region know that and they will never forget that. So please understand that you also have something. Uh, uh, if, if you don't care for Palestinians, understand that you are also involved I know not by your, own, by your own choice. I know many people, of course, we see in the protests are against this. But, but understand that it's being done in your name over there. So, so serious action is necessary here. Um, I'm talking about economic sanctions on Israel. I'm talking about severing ties with Israel. This is the only way that Israel will be uh, forced to change its, its uh, policies and behaviors. Well, my understanding is many of these land grabs in the West Bank are being done by Israeli settlers, at least to some degree, independently. In just a moment, I want to ask about what kind of relationship those settlers who are actively taking over Palestinian homes have with the government. But first, Zaina, I'm wondering if, if you could tell the story of Bilal Mohammed Saleh, who um, was harvesting olive trees on his land in the West Bank just a few days ago. Yeah, um, you know, I, I didn't report on this specific story, but um, uh, Bilal is at least the eighth, the eighth Palestinian to be killed uh, since October 7 by settlers, by armed settlers, um, and facing no kind of punishment. Um, uh, and I wanted to add before that uh, 121 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank um, total by Israeli forces and settlers. Uh, since October 7. Um, mm -hmm. The attacks by settlers are increasing. Uh, they've been steadily increasing since 2016. Um, but And even at the beginning of this year, uh, in February, we had the Hawara pogrom when hundreds, 400 settlers descended onto the village of Hawara in Nablus, um, torched dozens of homes, cars. This is ongoing. This is not something 
something new. Um, now the world is paying attention because uh, because Israelis were killed. Um, yeah. Mohaned, I wanted to go back to you. You kind of gave our listeners a challenge around how some of this violence is being waged uh, in, in our names as people in the U.S., as people who pay taxes here. I'm wondering um, if I, if you could talk a little bit more about the relationship, not, not between U.S. funding of Israel's military directly, but of the relationship um, that, that you're calling out with people who are settlers may not be active members of the Israeli military right now. What's the relationship between those settlers and, I guess, their own military, but also, as you're describing, U.S. funding? Yes. So, so let me address the question of the settlers and the Israeli state, because that's a very important one. So thank you for, for bringing that up. I've argued this. Um, uh, I've, I've written about this already, and, and I argue this point in a forthcoming book. Um, uh, but Palestinian scholars have written about this before as well. The relationship between the settlers and the state is one of symbiosis, not of a, of a, of a relationship that is of a a nuisance to the Israeli state, as is sometimes painted in uh, in, in liberal discourses in the U.S. and in Israel. Um, and if you don't take my word for it or other Palestinians in 2007, uh, 2007, two Israeli scholars, Edith Zertal and Akiva Eldar, wrote a book called Lords of the Land, The War for Israel's Settlements in the Occupied Territories from 1967 to 2007. That's the title of the book. And in it, they show very clearly that across the uh, uh, political spectrum within Israeli politics from the left to the far right, um, the Israeli state has actively supported the settlement movement. So there's this, uh, the, the discourse that paints the settlers as a nuisance to the Israeli state, as something that the Israeli state does not welcome, is a, is a, is a discourse that conceals the reality of the Israeli state as a settler colonial state, not one that reveals uh, the reality of what's happening on the ground. So even Ehud Barak uh, um, supported the settlements, even though he pushed back on some of their actions and thought that they weren't helpful. Uh, overall, in the, in the, when you calculate the entire uh, picture, as, as those two Israeli scholars argued, he also felt an affinity uh, an emotional affinity to the settlement movement and did not really get in the way of settlement expansion. And all we've seen uh, uh, over the last couple of decades since they wrote that book in 2007 is an intensification of that where there's now more or less no, it's, it, they don't even, the Israeli government right now does not even pretend to be opposed to the settlement movement as many of its cabinet ministers are in fact leaders of that settlement movement. So, so that's uh, uh, the, the idea that the settlers act in a way that is not sanctioned by the state is simply false. And in these attacks that we're seeing right now, uh, there's clear evidence that the Israeli state forces are supporting the settlers, are protecting them, and are not taking any action to stop them or hinder their actions. So th this is clearly now happening out in the open, what, what has been happening for a very long time behind the scenes. Um, and, and in terms of the American um, uh, angle here, the United States is not just providing 
uh, economic aid. Uh, it's not just not just providing military weapons and now soldiers and military uh, um, assets to the region sending its uh, aircraft carrier. It also continuously provides diplomatic cover for Israel. And I also have written about this, as have others, you know, I don't want to paint myself here as like breaking new grounds. Many Palestinians have, have said these things forever. You know, Rashid Khalidi, many, many, many others, Joseph Masad, um, uh, Noura Arakat, like so many uh, Palestinian and, and uh, uh, Jewish scholars as well, and, and even Israeli scholars. The, 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 the United States views Israel as a, uh, I would call it an imperial outpost in the region. Others might use the language of a strategic ally, whatever, um, uh, but, but uh, um, it is an imperial outpost. The United States is, is an empire. It has imperial interests in the region, uh, and those imperial interests revolve around resources, trade routes, access to markets, expansion of financial industries, weapons industries, and other and other considerations, um, and and since really it, it started to heat up during the Cold War, where the United States saw Israel as an important ally in its in its Cold War confrontation with the Soviet Union, um, so so uh, the, the United States. It, it, is, is always tied to Israel, not based on, not on the basis of values and democracy and all of that nonsense uh, that we hear uh, um, uh, in the media and by uh, politicians like Biden from the left to the right. Uh, it is, uh, has always been based on self-interest. The United States views its uh, self-interest in the region in imperial terms, and it views Israel as a, as a critical outpost for it in order for it to achieve its imperial interest in the region. That's the core of the issue. And I, I understand that people in the United States will question this and other. I, let me just tell you, I'm communicating to you what is actually happening on the ground. Forget what governments and regimes in the Arab world are saying. They're not, they're not representative of what the people on the ground believe. If, if I'm saying what I'm saying right now in, on an Arab um, a, a radio station, I would be laughed at for saying something that is so obvious that it doesn't even need saying. That's, mm -hmm. So people need to understand this. Can and I just add one to more thing? Go for it, Zaina. Yes. Sorry, sorry. Um, to the first point that Mohammed was making, the Israeli government uh, gives its settlers in the West Bank um, $5 million a year, $5.5 million a year, to monitor, report, and restrict Palestinian construction in Area C, which makes up over 60% of the occupied West Bank. Um, this money, like the, the guards of the settlements, they come out and they, they're so close to the Palestinian villages. Um, they themselves have have killed Palestinians. Um, the money is also used to hire inspectors. Uh, they literally come up to Palestinians, um, renovating or building homes, and tell them to stop and bring the police or bring the, the army. Um, and in April, the Israeli authorities asked to double that amount uh, given to settlers in the budget to 40 million shekel, which is 11 uh, million dollars. And you are listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. I'm Jesse Strauss in conversation with Zainat Tahan, digital correspondent for Al Jazeera, as well as Muhammad Ayash, policy analyst for Al Shabaka. Zaina, one of the things you've been focusing on and covering for Al Jazeera is uh, the 5,000 Palestinians who've been arrested, or more than 5,000 Palestinians who've been arrested since October 7th. I want to spend some time in depth on Palestinian prisoners right now. Let's dive in there first. That sheer number of new new arrests since October 7th is staggering. Who makes up those 5,000 new Palestinian prisoners? 
Um, so, so there are um, more than 5,000 now. Uh, 4,000 of those are um, Palestinian labor workers uh, who are residents of the Gaza Strip but were arrested inside uh, 48 territories or Israel um, since October 7. They've been, they are being held in uh, military camps and some of them in, in prisons. Um, there's another 1,600, at least 600 people arrested from, uh, from Jerusalem and uh, the West Bank since October 7. Um, all of these, the vast majority of these, are being held in one form of or another of administrative detention, which is um, holding prisoners indefinitely without trial or charge. In, in this particular context, what does administrative detention mean? Do, are, are there charges that people are facing specifically that they may not see in trial for a very long time? Are there specific ac- accusations or allegations um, that the Israeli government is, is saying that these people have done? So administrative deten- detention is based on secret information that neither neither the detainee nor his lawyer can access. <clears throat> sorry. Um, uh, 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 sorry. The la- so basically 80% of those people that were arrested in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem, the 1,600 have been transferred to administrative detention. Um, the, the, the order is very vague. It's like... Um, uh, the commander believes that uh, this person may harm public order or public security. Um, and then that's for six months uh, or four months, renewable periods indefinitely. That's specifically administrative detention. But um, for the 4,000 people arrested from Gaza, um, they're held under the unlawful combatants law, which is another form of administrative detention. Um, and that's based on a uh, reasonable cause that this person is an unlawful combatant and that his release will harm national security. Is that describing that those 4,000 people are alleged to be militantly fighting Israel's invasion forces? Yeah, so they, so I basically, they, a lot of them haven't gone uh, into court hearings. They're going to be, um, uh, the sessions are going to be held inside Israel, I think in the, in the Naqab in the south. Um, but they're currently all being held under this law. Uh, mm. I'm trying to imagine. I'm sorry, can I'm, I just, can I, oh, go for, can I yes, just say please. one last thing? Um, so the detainees held, so those from Gaza held under this law, uh, they may be held for uh, up to uh, 14 days. Um, so they won't have a hearing before 14 days uh, being arrested. I'm trying to imagine the logistical and practical, as impractical it is as it is, but the logistical side of imprisoning 5,000 new people in just a few weeks. Are you aware of what kind of capacity that Israel has to house um, that many? And we would understand that number to be increasing as time goes forward. Do you understand, are, are you aware of what kind of capacity Israel has to hold these people? And, and maybe a little bit more about the conditions that these people are facing in the facilities that they're being held? 
Yes, um, so uh, there is a lot of overcrowding already inside the prisons. Um, I spoke to someone who was released in mid-October uh, after serving five years. Um, he told me that in some of the cells there are six people on the beds and six people on mats on the floors. Um, when he went in, there was five people, like the cell can hold up to five people, and now uh, when he left, there were 12 people in the cell. Um, so they're moving prisoners between prisons, taking them out uh, and transferring them to other prisons. I don't know how much the entire capacity that Israel, the number that it has, that it is able to hold. But um, there are new new units being uh, built in at least Afir prison near, near uh, Ramallah. There are hundreds of new units being uh, almost done. Um, but I'm so glad you asked about the conditions because uh, uh, Palestinian officials and rights groups and lawyers are um, really pushing for people to understand that the, the conditions inside the prisons are very difficult. Um, we've had two Palestinian prisoners uh, who died in Israeli custody uh, since October 7. Um, one of them uh, was uh, 57. Um, uh, he was beaten. Uh, and the other one, 25, who had diabetes, who was also beaten. Um, uh, Israel denies, is denying, of course, but uh, with, there are over 70 Palestinian prisoners who have died inside Israeli prisons due to torture since 1967. Um, they've cut off, they've, they've removed all electrical devices from the prisoners. They have no contact with the, with the outside world. Um, the lawyer visits are very infrequent. Uh, there's maybe been one or two uh, visits since the events happened. Um, they're not able to cook their own food. Uh, and I should have talked about this more in the beginning, but there are severe beatings of people going on. There are people who have had their bones broken. Um, and as I said, we're not, the, the groups, the institutions are not able to get all the information because uh, there's also a commu communication blackout on the prisons. There's also been a pretty large media discourse on the 200 or so Israelis that Hamas took prisoner. I know there's diplomatic efforts from other countries, including the U.S., to try and get those prisoners free. It strikes me that there have been prisoners taken from multiple sides here, Israel taking more than 5,000 Palestinian prisoners just since October 7th, and, of course, another 5,000 as prisoners prior to that date. Hamas taking 200 or so, I think we still don't know the exact number. Most of the media calls those Israeli prisoners hostages and these Palestinians prisoners. I'm wondering, and Zena, you can feel free to pass this on to Mohanad if you'd like. What is the, what's the difference in this situation between a hostage and a prisoner? Um, I feel that uh, as soon as we say, I am going to pass it to Mahanad, but I feel that as soon as we say prisoner, it automatically assumes that this person is convicted of, of wrongdoing or, or that the system is fair or that it's, you know, it's by the state, um, which is not the case. Palestinians view all uh, prisoners inside Israeli prisons as political prisoners uh, in the struggle against um, colonialism. Um, and yeah, I'll pass it to Mohammed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Zain is correct. Uh, um, 
let, let me just be very clear here. There's no justice in Israeli courts for the Palestinians. Um, uh, the Israeli state has law. This isn't, again, this isn't new. This is, I just want to keep repeating that point. These are intensifications of processes that we've seen for decades. So none of this is new. Um, uh, we've studied it and, and analyzed it you know, a, a thousand times before. The Israeli state basically uh, uh, imprisons any Palestinians, uh, uh, any Palestinian that, that refuses submission to, to the Israeli state. It's, it's all force. It's the use of the, it, the law here is the continuation of uh, uh, violence. It's not uh, law as people understand it as, as a place for justice. Um, so, um, uh, and as Zena mentioned, you know, people are, are put in, in, in horrendous conditions. They're, they're tortured. There's sexual violence. There's beatings. Um, uh, uh, there's no access to lawyers. Lawyers don't even know why, why people are being arrested. You can simply being ar be arrested for uh, uh, being, quote unquote, political, according to the Israeli state. Um, uh, just to give you an idea, let me just take you back to the first intifada for a moment here. Because one of the okay, amazing Mohan, things that need... happened during... Oh, oh. We, running Mohan, out of time. I need to let you know we have about 40 seconds left. Yes. So briefly. Oh, wow. OK, so I won't do that. I won't do that. But let me just say this very clearly, uh, um, uh, very clearly is keep the U.S. out of it. Qatar and, and Turkey can can easily do an exchange of, of hostages here uh, and Hamas would would easily uh, uh, do this. I, th this is not an issue for and Israel has come out and said this is not their priority. So so the idea that th th this is a stumbling block, it's not. Qatar and Turkey can easily mediate an exchange. Of, of, of hostages here. And Zena, I want to give you the last word in about 30 seconds. Can you give us the latest on the potential for a prisoner exchange um, happening? And also, if there's one quick message you'd like people to understand with more clarity and more depth about what's going on, what would that be? Um, so far, the indications are not great on whether there's going to be a uh, prisoner slash hostage exchange. Um, Hamas has said that they'll release the hostages uh, if all the prisoners inside Israeli jails are released. Um, we can dream, inshallah. Um, the last thing I want to say is what's happening in Palestine, and this echoes exactly what Mohanad said, is the result of over 100 years of settler colonialism engineered, facilitated, legalized, and maintained by Western powers for their own strategic interests in the Arab world. And these are the voices of Al Jazeera digital correspondent Zainat Tahan joining us from Jerusalem, along with Mohanad Ayash, policy analyst for Al Shabaka. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very for much. Having us. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>